Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. This week's episode of Words and Numbers is sponsored by 3on6.com. Dr. Randy Roberts invented the 3-on-6 procedure as a new way to replace a full set of teeth using dental implants and bridges. Dr. Roberts wanted to come up with an effective and affordable alternative to uncomfortable dentures and something that was much less expensive than traditional dental implants, which can run as high as $80,000. Good, $80,000. You could almost buy a house for that, Ant. I've got my eye on the Tesla Cybertruck. I can buy two of those for $80,000. Here we go. With Dr. Roberts' three-on-six procedure, you'll end up with teeth that are comfortable, that look natural, that you can clean yourself, need never be removed. This is really good stuff, and it's at a fraction of what traditional dental implants will cost you. You can find a provider and a free consultation by visiting 3on6.com. That's the number three, the word on, and the number six, 3on6.com. You'll get a free scan of your mouth to determine whether you qualify, and you'll even get some financing information. So go on over to 3on6.com to learn more about this revolutionary procedure and to find a provider near you. Well, Ant, what's new and exciting in your world this week? In a recent article appearing in The Economist, Adam Grant, professor of management and psychology at the Wharton Business School, discusses how the coronavirus may end up contributing to more work satisfaction as employers become more comfortable with employees working from home. And that got me thinking about the 40-hour work week. Having worked in both industry and higher education, I've long been of the opinion that the amount of productive work that goes on in a typical worker's typical week is less than 40 hours. When you account for meetings that might otherwise have been emails, something we have in abundance in higher education, those productive hours decline even further. Enter researchers Michael Huberman and Chris Minns of the University of Montreal and the London School of Economics who have relevant numbers. They estimate that the average work week for full-time non-agricultural workers has dropped from over 60 hours in the late 1800s to 50 hours by the early 1900s to 40 hours in the 1950s. But once it hit 40 hours, it's stuck there. If the decline had continued, we'd today be working 30 to 35 hour work weeks. What happened? I think we might be working 30 hours. I think we might be working even less. I tend to think that's the case. Now, the researchers looked at a number of developed countries. Among their sample, the U.S. work week is the second longest at 40 hours and 15 minutes. The shortest is the Netherlands at just under 34 hours. And what's interesting here is that while the Netherlands work week is 16% shorter than ours, their per capita GDP is only 10% less. How is it that the Dutch spend 16% fewer hours working but produce only 10% less? The people at salary.com shed some light on the question. They surveyed 3,200 workers among whom Almost two-thirds say they waste at least an hour a day at work just on the computer. That's not counting non-work-related discussions with coworkers, coffee, snacks, smoke breaks, these sorts of things. And 70% of those who waste time said that they do so because they don't have enough work to do or their hours are too long. In other words, we're basically already working four-day weeks. 
we're just spending one of our three-day weekend days goofing off at the office. So why not make it official? I think that's right. But of course, if we made it official, people would still goof off at the same proportion. And then we would be talking about having a four-day weekend. Yeah, I don't know if that's the case. If you look at Salary.com's data, the reason people say that they're goofing off is because they don't have enough work to do. I don't know what to make of this, but it's going to be interesting because this isn't going away. No, it's not. And we may look back years from now and thank the coronavirus for ushering in the three-day weekend. But this is something that was building up long before that came along, and it'll still be a pressure in the labor market after it's settled. I'm interested to see where this one goes. I remember when you and I were young, people would often comment that by the year 2000, it was always by the year 2000. That was when I was going to get a flying car also. Still a little mad about that. But they would always say that by the year 2000, we'll all be working 20-hour weeks. Boy, that didn't really come to pass, or did it? Yeah, it may yeah. actually and, have. <laughs> we may actually already be there. We're just spreading our 20 hours out over the 40 we're on the clock. The thing I found most interesting this week, Ant, was that Princeton University is going to remove Woodrow Wilson's name from the public policy school over, quote, racist thinking and policies, unquote. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but Woodrow Wilson is a very, very difficult character in American history. President in the early part of the 20th century, a fantastic racist, just horrible. Even more so given the day? Yeah, hard to make a positive case for him in any way, shape, or form. And his modern-day followers tend only to want to see him as one of the fathers of progressivism. That he was. But he was also an incredible racist. He was president of Princeton University for a time, and it especially came out there. But it underlined many, if not most, of the things he did. So this is one of those few, I guess we're going to call them cancellations. That seems to be the word that we've landed on for this sort of thing. He's one of the few cancellations that I can get behind 100%, no question about it. Most of the time I see these things and I think to myself, okay, the people who are doing this have a point, but the point might not be as ironclad as they think it is. I put Woodrow Wilson in the same category as I put the Confederate flag. There's no reason to be flying a Confederate flag, none whatsoever. And anybody who's doing that should reconsider right now. And I think Woodrow Wilson falls into that category with me. It's qualitatively different than when we look at these statues of Civil War figures that all went up more or less around the 50th anniversary of the war. And our friend Phil Magnus did a lot of research on this, which we'll link to in the show notes. So those, I think, are more questionable in a lot of ways. I don't know where I come down on those things. I understand and appreciate both sides of that argument. Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand, and the Confederate flag, I don't know that there is a compelling point on the other side of the ledger. I never thought I'd be saying this, but hats off to Princeton for doing the right thing. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, and I really appreciate it when it happens. So good on them. Which brings me to the foolishness of the week. And we're going to stay in the same zip code as this cancellation culture thing for the foolishness. Here we have the L'Oreal people, you know, the people who make makeup and stuff like that. They're going to remove words like whitening and fair from their products. They're not going to use those as descriptors anymore because racism. 
I thought we had gone too far about a year ago on this kind of thing. I know we've gone too far now. If we're not allowed to use the word white in a product, what's next, Dan? Are we going to have to rename the White House? Teeth whitening? Right. Can't call it that anymore. I mean, this is just ridiculous. The next step beyond that is eliminating other colors that might offend other people. And before you know, we've got no words for colors. The thing that comes to my mind almost immediately here is, what would our black friends think about this sort of thing? Because to me, it seems awfully condescending. You know, a company says, oh, we don't want to offend you. We're not going to call our product white anything. Right. Well, what if that's what the product is? I don't know a person in the world who would take legitimate offense at that. And notice I said legitimate offense. Because you can be offended about anything. That doesn't make it right. A lot of people get offended over everything so they can go on Twitter and virtue signal to their heart's content and then wake up the next morning and do it all over again. The rest of us, on the other hand, live here in the real world and we would prefer not to be offensive to our neighbors and friends. I don't want to be offensive, nor do I want anything around me to be offensive. But this L'Oreal business, I think this is just condescending. It's amazing to me how often things like this are popping up in the news that remind me almost verbatim of passages in 1984. And if you haven't read 1984, go get yourself a copy. This was written in 1948. I have a passage here in which the speaker is explaining what's called new speak, which is a new form of language. The intent is to eliminate words from the English language and replace them with party-approved concepts that rob the English speakers of the ability to express certain concepts. So here's the quote. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. How is that not what's going on right now? George Orwell, in addition to being a brilliant author, was, I think, a witch. (laughs) He seems to have have seen the future quite clearly from 1948. It's strange, right? Because Orwell said it would be government that would do it. And we ended up with mobs in the streets that are doing it here. He got it mostly right. He just didn't quite get the perpetrator in his sights. This weekend, we've got our good friend Rob McDonald. Rob McDonald is professor of history at West Point and author of Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time. He joins us this week to discuss his recently released book, The American Revolution, Core Documents. Professor McDonald has asked that we emphasize that his views are his own and do not represent those of the United States Military Academy. This is the first of a two-part series of interviews with Professor McDonald. The second will be coming out next week. Rob, welcome back to Words and Numbers. Yeah, thanks so much, Ant. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book is you give a several paragraph introduction in front of each document that really brings its relevance to the present day out. I wrote those paragraphs before each document in part because one of the hopes is that this book will be enjoyed not only by general readers, but that it will also be used in the classroom. And so I thought that contextualizing these documents is really important. I tried to select documents that span the length of the imperial crisis all the way up through the conclusion of the War for Independence in 1783. And if I achieved the job that I was trying to achieve, if you actually read all of those introductions together, 
they provide a fairly coherent and fairly comprehensive overview of the American Revolution. We'll link to the book in the show notes so people who are interested in grabbing a copy can do so pretty easily. But Rob, I think you did a tremendous service with this book, right? It's a a relatively thin volume. The documents you chose were very well chosen, right? They're great reasons for all of them. But my favorite thing about it, my absolute favorite thing about it, is that in giving us the documents of the revolution, you didn't start in 1774 like so many people do. You started in 1760, which is, I think, exactly where the revolution commenced with James Otis in the Writs of Assistance case in Massachusetts. Why don't you talk about that a little bit and what led you to include that as the opening offering in the book? James, you're certainly familiar with the John Adams letter in which Right. He writes that the real American Revolution took place in the 15 years before a drop of blood was spilled at Lexington and conquered. So he begins the story in 1762. And I'd like to think that I've learned a lot about the American Revolution during my years as a history professor, but I still think that John Adams knows more. I took his lead. And I love James Otis's speech against writs of assistance. Maybe we should explain to your audience what these writs were. Essentially, They gave the British government and its agents in America the power to search people's warehouses, ships, and even private homes without specific court-issued warrants. And essentially what they're trying to do is to stop smuggling. And we should perhaps note that one of the things that leads to the American Revolution are the conditions that were created as a result of the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, as it was known in America, It was a victory for Britain and the American colonists. The French were defeated, but it was an expensive victory. Between 1754 and 1763, Britain's debt doubled, and Britain received very little from the American colonies in terms of revenue, in part because they had turned a blind eye to smuggling. So they're trying to tighten down on that. They're trying to bring in more revenue. These writs would have been a really useful tool But they violated what James Otis said was sort of a sacred principle to Englishmen on both sides of the Atlantic. And it's a great phrase. It's one that we used to hear a lot. I'm not sure that we hear it quite as much these days, but it's that a man's house is his castle. If I could update that and say, you know, a man or a woman's home is his or her castle, think about what that means. If your house is your castle, that means that you are the king inside your house. Or if you're a woman, you're the queen inside your house. And if you're the king inside your house, who is not the king inside your house? Literally everybody else, including the actual king. Exactly. Right? So the king can be king out on the public square, and the king can be the king on the public road. But on your property, you're in charge. That's what makes it your property. That is an incredible principle in terms of limiting the power of the state. And it's also a very important principle if your aim is to develop a society where people are tolerant of one another. Because if you want to retain your right as the king of your property to paint your house some hot neon green or something, I hope you wouldn't if you live near me, but regardless, if your neighbor does that, you realize that if you try to use force of law to stop your neighbor from doing that, You're not only eroding your neighbor's right, but you're also eroding your own rights. And so people tend to learn to get along and respect one another's abilities to make decisions over the things that are theirs. When we talk about John Adams looking at James Otis, he gives us one of the great phrases. I don't suspect it originated with him, but he said that 
the revolution commenced, like you said, long before the first shot was fired. The revolution commenced in the hearts and minds of the people. Yes. Isn't that something that somebody who was as involved as Adams was, and in the end, he was deeply involved, could sit back and say, you know, it really wasn't with us, the revolutionary generation. It was with the people. Mm -hmm. It was all them. That's really something. Absolutely. You get to the Federalist and there Publius says, well, it falls to the people of this place to see whether we can depend on deliberation or if it always has to be accident and force. How are we going to have a government? And it falls to us. And the idea that if it couldn't work here under the conditions we had at the time, self-government wasn't going to work anywhere. The stakes were so high and they pulled it off. That's the weird part. They did. And I think one reason for that is that the American people at the time of the American Revolution were different than any people anywhere else in the world. They were different in some really important ways. The first is there was a very high degree of literacy in the American colonies, higher even than in Great Britain itself. And another, I think, really important factor is that property ownership was so widespread. Among the free population, it was much more common than not to own your own land, to own your own house, to have enough land so that you could provide for yourself and your family and be economically independent, which some of our founders, like Thomas Jefferson believed, allowed you to be mentally independent. You could think for yourself if you could provide for yourself because you couldn't be exploited by someone who had you under their economic boot. I mean, this really was a middling land that was, I think, ripe for self-government. What struck me talking about the writs of assistance, and you start the book generally there, I'm reading this and I'm hearing you talk about this as the advent of the revolution. And yet what I'm reading is identical to what we're experiencing now with no-knock raids and civil asset forfeiture. It seems that we are much more complacent about these rights violations now than our ancestors were several hundred years ago. I mean, they were willing to start a revolution over this, and we just sit back and take it. Yes. I've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, especially these past few months, given the quarantines that have been imposed as a result of COVID-19. We haven't been allowed, many of us in many parts of the country, to even attend church as a result of, you know, what are probably very legitimate health concerns. But still, I mean, that is a cherished and longstanding right. And that governors, even without the consent of the legislature, can deny that to people, I think is kind of concerning. We've landed on, I think, what the interesting topic for right now is. We're looking at your documentary history of the revolution, and yet we're living through some very strange times. And a lot of people are starting to say things like, what we're up against right now is revolutionary in flavor. Let's at least take that seriously for a minute or two. And if it is of a revolutionary flavor, what kind? Is it the American Revolution? Is it something else? But let's start with the basic question. Are we looking at the seeds of revolution right now, given your historical perspective? I certainly hope not. And I certainly hope not because I think in some respects, the American Revolution was at least meant to be the revolution to end all revolutions, at least within the United States, because we created a framework with the Constitution that allows us peacefully to make changes in our government and the world around us. 
balancing the will of the majority with ironclad individual rights. I mean, that is our constitutional framework. The principles of the American Revolution, and the American revolutionaries would have been the first to tell you this. Look at Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence, for one example, where he lashes out against the king for the international slave trade. The revolution had principles that not even the revolutionaries themselves could fully attain, but at least they established what those principles were and our pursuit of those principles over the past 240 odd years. I think has been a great American success story. So when people start talking about revolution today, I think it's quite disturbing because I think if you take a long view of American history in many respects, we can be very proud of the degree to which we have upheld the principles of 1776. And I think if the American revolutionaries themselves could travel through time, in many respects, they'd be astounded in, in a pleasant way at the society that we have managed to achieve. I think they would be astonished that the principles are still something that we talk about on a somewhat regular basis. I mean, I think from my perspective, I'd like it if we talked about it a little bit more. But there's always an interesting element when we think about the American Revolution, because when we think about revolution simply, we tend to think in Marxian terms. A revolution comes to upend everything that came before it and replace it with something new. Yeah. Now, the American Revolution was a curious animal in the history of revolutions. And I've contended before that it was a conservative revolution, that it happened to keep things the way they were. It's a classic question. When you get your PhD in history or maybe in political theory and you take your comprehensive exams in American history, one of the comprehensive exams is going to focus on the 18th century. And the classic question is, how revolutionary was the American Revolution? And the reason that's a classic question is because you could answer it with great evidence in both ways. You could say that, as you just pointed out, in some ways it was conservative. The Americans were trying in many respects to restore the status quo that existed before the imperial crisis that was triggered by the British response to the French and Indian War. But at the same time, during the course of the imperial crisis, when people like James Otis and Sam Adams and Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and others started to make arguments about why the British government was acting illegitimately when it imposed taxes upon them without their consent, when it restricted their liberties, and even when the British government sent its troops to America and the troops started to do things to endanger or end Americans' lives, they began to discover new principles that they wanted to advance. And if they could no longer, after independence, say that they possessed English liberties, they then had to go to the argument that I think we all agree upon today, which is that it's not your status as a citizen of any particular nation that provides you with the basis of your rights, that the basis of your rights comes from your humanity, your status as a human being. And then it became a whole new ball game. And they began to realize that in America in 1776, about 20% of the human beings were owned by other people. And that was clearly inconsistent with their best principles. And yet, Slavery was so embedded in their society that even modest attempts to sort of chip away at it were met with great opposition and great controversy. One of the documents that's in this reader 
is, as I mentioned, Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration as we know it today, as ratified by the Continental Congress, Jefferson's responsible for about, I don't know, 97, 98% of the words, but he also wrote other words that Congress omitted. And some of them were, he has waged, he being the king, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere. At the moment of America's birth, the delegates to the Continental Congress from Georgia and South Carolina said, if this remains in, if this passage remains in the Declaration of Independence, you could count us out. And at the moment of America's birth, we compromised on this issue and kicked the can down the road. So it's sad in many respects. Rob, I want to concentrate on this very famous, at least in terms of historians and political scientists, this very famous deleted indictment against King George III, the one against slavery. Sure. Because if you read the indictments in the Declaration, the big chunk of the document, the middle part that nobody ever reads, right? If you read them, they do, in fact, go from least important to most important. Mm -hmm. There's an obvious ordering to them, right? These were people who really thought about words they wrote, and that indictment fell last on the list. Yeah. It was most important. Absolutely. And and we lose, I think, a lot of sleep over the fact that Jefferson owned slaves, and I get why we would, but people throw the baby out with the bathwater on this far too often. They say, because he owned slaves, nothing he said was valid. And these are truth statements he's making. They're either true or they're not. It doesn't matter whether he lived up to them. First, we have to decide if they're true. I think, unfortunately, there are some people who misread the Declaration of Independence in a multitude of different ways. But there are a lot of social studies teachers out there, for example, who will read the line that Jefferson pens, all men are created equal. And then they'll say, ah, but the Continental Congress didn't mean to include women or it didn't consider African-Americans to be men. And this passage clearly disproves that. That's world-class nonsense. Yeah, well, it's common. It's commonly dispensed in American classrooms, unfortunately. And the question of Jefferson as a slaveholder, I think in some ways it sort of misses the headline. I mean, slavery obviously is so utterly shocking for us. I think it's fair to say that it's incomprehensible to us. We can't imagine a world where some people would own other people. We can't imagine being owned by someone else. We can't imagine owning someone else. So thankfully, it is shocking to us. But it was so normal, not just in America, but everywhere in the 18th century. And it was so normal for Thomas Jefferson that his very first memory as a two-year-old is being carried on a pillow and looking up into the face of a man who his family owned. And his last dying request was sort of making eye contact with an enslaved man and asking for his pillow to be adjusted when he was on his deathbed. This was an all-consuming world. And it's not a shock that a political leader in the 18th century would own slaves. What is really stunning, and I think incredibly commendable, is that that same man, Thomas Jefferson, would emerge as the leading critic of slavery of his generation. I mean, he made more proposals to try to chip away at the seemingly impenetrable edifice of slavery than any other office holder of his era. And this 
is just one of the examples of the things that he tried to do. I would go even further than that, right? Because slavery is not only the norm in the 18th century in America, slavery is the norm in human history. That's right. Absolutely. And yet Jefferson in 1776 writes what I think is the most powerful and important sentence ever written. Yeah. The all men are created equal sentence. Within four score and seven years, slavery is gone. It is amazing. And it starts very quickly after 1776. And I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever. The ideas of the American Revolution were plain. They were clear to people. And previous generations in America and elsewhere didn't even really notice slavery. It was here in America because of the principles of the American Revolution that people in various states started to take measures to eradicate slavery. Massachusetts invalidated it with its constitution, at least as interpreted by the Massachusetts State Supreme Court. Vermont, in its 1777 constitution, outlawed slavery. New Hampshire would soon follow. Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, Pennsylvania. And if Jefferson had had his way, Virginia would have passed gradual emancipation bills that put an expiration date on the institution of slavery. Look at the richness of the revolution. Look at what it leads to. And people, and I think you're right to criticize garden variety, high school social studies teachers. They're looking for the easy, cheap way out. But let's back up a step because you left us off before this digression with the idea that there are certain things that no government can do, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that seems to be woven into the American character, that government by its very nature must be limited. So I think we've got to talk at least briefly about the sugar and the stamp acts. Well, sure. Although before even we talk about the sugar and the stamp acts, I think one of the most powerful ideas of the American Revolution is that government serves the people, not the other way around. That the people create the government. It's not as if government has always existed. Government, as John Locke argued, justifying the glorious revolution in England of 1688, government is created by people to do certain specific things. And those things are to secure individual rights. Locke said to life and liberty and property. And so when you look at things like the Stamp Act of 1765, which was a tax imposed on all manner of different printed documents, everything from contracts to marriage licenses to newspapers. All the way to playing cards. Playing cards and dice. I guess they must have dice. taxed the packaging. First of all, That's right. what a stupid law for the politicians. It's almost as if <laughs> politicians had gone to the bookstore and checked out a volume called How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Because you couldn't design a law that was more odious and onerous and that alienated more important constituencies. I mean, it angers the press, it angers the lawyers, it angers clergymen, it angers even drunkards in taverns who are playing cards and dice. That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Have a wonderful 4th of July, everyone. It actually means something. And Rob, you seem to be with us every year at about this time. So I guess you best start on that next book to come on back next year. But in the meantime, do have a look at Rob's book, The American Revolution Core Documents. And Rob, I think you missed a golden opportunity. You really should have had a cover price of 1776. <laughs> Fantastic. You could have discounted it from there, but that... that... Thanks for joining us, Rob. We'd like to offer special thanks to our Patreon sponsors. If you're able to give as little as a dollar a month to help us out, please wander over to patreon.com slash words and numbers. 
We'd also like to thank our friend Wes Westmoreland, founder of the Pinnacle Classical Academy, who helps make these episodes possible. Thank you, Wes. Subscribe to Words and Numbers on your podcast players. It helps move us up in the podcast rankings. Check out our book, Cooperation and Coercion, available on Amazon. And of course, send us email, wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. Don't even think about sending us email, (laughs) but follow us on Twitter. That's where most of that stuff should happen. Our handles will be in the show notes. And until next week, have a good one. See you next week, James. 